chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 3. So Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verse 15. So Genesis 3, 15. Well, it has been almost 75 years since World War II officially came to an end, and yet there are still certain dates from that conflict which are just etched into the American memory. One of those uh, is, is one that we remember just earlier this week, December 7th, a day which has become known as Pearl Harbor Day because it marks, um, it marks a day uh, which lives on, really, in the words of President Roosevelt and the memory of Americans as a day of infamy. On that day in 1941, the American naval base at Pearl Harbor was hit with a surprise attack by air and by the air and naval forces of the Empire of Japan. Now, at the time, diplomatic relations with Japan were under tension, but we were not yet in a state of war with each other, and that really kicked things off. Ja the Japanese took advantage of the peace, decided that things were degrading, and they were going to try to land a first punch to cripple American fighting power, at least long enough for them to complete their takeover of the South Pacific. To a certain extent, it was a major victory for the Japanese forces. They, they managed to damage all eight of the American battleships that were stationed there. They sank four of them, and they damaged nine additional ships and vessels. Uh, they also managed to destroy 188 planes. They damaged another 159, and more than 2,300 American soldiers and sailors were killed along with another 1,100 who were wounded. All of that, and the Japanese only lost 29 planes and only took 129 casualties. So pretty, pretty lopsided affair there. But the Japanese Navy failed in one major way. It did not manage to destroy or even to damage any of the American aircraft carriers which were out on maneuvers at the time of the attack. Uh, when, the Admiral, when the Admiral of the Japanese forces, Admiral Yamamoto, who, which who, he had conceived this whole attack on Pearl Harbor, when he found out that their attack had not managed to even damage one of the American carriers, he was reportedly devastated. And he told his officers that he feared they had only managed to awaken a sleeping giant. Turned out he was right. The attack on Pearl Harbor, though it was one of the darkest days in American history, was also one of those pivotal moments that changed everything. It brought the U.S. into World War II. And six months later, it was Yamamoto's navy that was at the bottom of the sea. Four years later, the, it was Japan that was signing over its surrender, finally bringing together in, an end to the global struggle for freedom. December 7th isn't a day that we remember as Americans because we relish it. It's a day we remember because though it was a day of great loss, ultimately it was also the beginning of our path to victory over an aggressive enemy. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning has a similar feel to that, I think. It tells us about another day, a day that we remember in a similar way, though it is a much darker and more significant day. Genesis 3 tells us about the day that sin entered the world and death with it. In doing so, it explains to us how the curse of sin came into the world, and it gives us an explanation for all the other acts of sin and violence that the world has seen since. 
It explains to us how God's good creation was undone by one selfish act committed by Adam and Eve against the command of God. And then it ends up holding a mirror up to our own hearts, convicting us of the way that we have followed in their footsteps according to the sinful nature that we have inherited from them. Now Genesis 3 hardly seems like the sort of passage that we might expect to be read or to hear at Christmas. After all, Christmas is about light and life, right? Well, this passage is about the curse of sin and death. But I think it's an appropriate text to come to at a time like this because it tells us not only of how the darkness entered the world, but also of the first words of hope which shine out even in the midst of humanity's darkest hour. That hope, that inextinguishable hope that shines out into the darkness as a hope which hinges on the arrival of a promised offspring, a son who would bring peace and redemption to the world. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's about the arrival of the promised offspring. And that's going to be the theme that we're going to follow over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. Starting today, looking specifically at God's promise to send a son who was going to save us from our sin. Now, Brad has already graciously read Genesis 3 for us earlier to kind of help us get a better grasp of the full situation of Genesis 3. This morning, I'm just gonna, we're just going to spend our time unpacking one verse in the midst of that. Verse 15, which says, this is God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These are the words of the Lord, which he spoke as he was defining the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience. These are words that come in the midst of God's curse of the serpent, who was the one who first came to Eve and to Adam to tempt them to eat from the forbidden tree. Although verse 1 indicates that this was a physical creature, as we read this story, it becomes very clear from the very moment that the, the serpent begins to talk to Eve, questioning God's word and questioning God's motive, that this was more than just a simple snake, but that it was a tool being used by Satan in his war against God. The curse that falls on the snake begins with the physical consequences. Uh, that we see that the serpent is, is, uh, is cursed to crawl on its belly, to eat of the dust of the earth all of its days. But then, as the curse continues, God shifts things to speak about something much deeper. He declares that he is going to undo what the serpent has done. And that's where we hear the gospel shining out in God's word, to us, even on the world's darkest day. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium, the moment when the gospel was first presented. It It is here that we see God declaring that three things will happen from this moment forward, all of which lead us to look and to long for an offspring, someone who is going to reclaim what was lost and make things right, make things new again. God says three things, and these are going to be our three points this morning. First, he says, there's going to be war. Second, 
he declares that there is going to be victory by the offspring over the serpent. And third, he declares that that victory is going to come at great cost to the offspring himself. That's what we're going to unpack together this morning as we see the gospel preached even in the midst of Genesis 3. The end result of this, which is the main takeaway for us, is that God's plan to deal with the fall of man hinges on the arrival of this promised offspring who came to be crushed for our sin, but who in being crushed has secured victory for us as our risen king. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, the arrival of that offspring. And to better understand how that works and to see it specifically here in Genesis 3.15, we're going to look and unpack this verse in particular. So let's begin with this declaration of war on the darkness. Now, one of the objections that I have heard from people that they raise against the Bible or against the gospel is that they cannot understand how the actions of another person, namely Adam, could have had such an effect on the rest of us, really on the rest of creation. After all, I am not ultimately responsible for your decisions. Your decisions may affect me, but you are responsible for them, and, and you, you are not responsible for my decisions. So why is it that Adam and Eve's actions in the Garden of Eden do this to us? It's a valid question, and it's something that's worth delving into as we understand how not only how their actions matter for us, but ultimately it's for how the actions of this promised offspring matter for us. The answer to that question really lies in who Adam is and what God made him to be. Genesis 1 verse 26 tells us that God made man unique from the rest of his creation. I don't just mean Adam, I mean Adam and Eve, mankind. When God made Adam and then he made Eve, he made them in his own image, which means that he made them to live in a vibrant covenant relationship with him, to be reflections of his own glory. He tasked them with carrying on the work of being fruitful and expanding God's work in creation by exercising dominion over it. That, that was their mission, to declare the glory of God and to join God in his work. That image defined Adam as the first man. And it was also something that defined Eve when God made her from Adam. It's an image that we have received from Adam as well, since we are descended from him. But just as we receive this distinction of being made in the image of God from Adam, we also receive the disruption of his rebellion against God. Adam and Eve when they were first made, got to experience the light of God's glory. They lived in a right relationship with God. But then they fell from that life into death when they believed the lie that the serpent told them that the God who made them and everything and had given them everything they needed was actually holding out on them. The serpent told them that the reason that God had told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was because he knew that if they did, they would become like him. Adam and Eve decided in that moment that they would be better off if they broke God's command. They decided that they should be gods themselves. And so they took of that forbidden fruit and they ate. 
But as they did, they found that it was the serpent's word, not God's, which proved to be false. Love for God and his holiness was replaced by fear. Genesis 3 tells us how Adam and Eve did everything they could to cover up what had happened. They sowed fig leaves for themselves. They saw their own nakedness and they were ashamed. When they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they ran and hid themselves amongst the trees. But a corpse can't hide its smell, and neither could they. Death came to humanity just as God warned that it would. It's called Adam's sin and not Eve's sin for a reason. Adam was ultimately responsible. Eve had been made from him. He had failed to take action. He had not protected his wife, and he had not protected God's creation when the serpent first came in and started trying to undo what God had made. Not only that, we see that Adam cooperated freely and intentionally in this act of rebellion against God. And so sin and death came to Adam and through Adam into the world that God had made. Paul explains in Romans 5 verse 12, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The effect of Adam's sin isn't something that's up for debate. The evidence is in our own sinful hearts and our own sinful acts which are ever before us, confirming by experience what the Bible teaches about original sin and about Adam's headship. We are just like him. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. We feel the effects of his sin and the curse that came on our first parents in the aftermath of their decision to disobey God every day. We see the suffering that is in the world around us. We feel that fallen nature pull at us with the force of a riptide trying to take us out, trying to suffocate us under the restless waves of sin's passions. We are all outcasts of Eden, marked with the curse of sin, enslaved to the passions of our flesh, which Paul tells us are hostile towards God because it will not and it cannot submit to God's law. We are, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2, all born into death, unable and unwilling to serve the God who made us. Even so, in the aftermath of the fall, God was not willing to abandon his creation, which he had made for his own glory. He was not willing to see it corrupted and not to do something about it. The Bible tells us that because of sin, we are at war with God. That is true. That is the condition that came when Adam and Eve sinned against God and broke his law. But, and this is where we actually get into our passage, the good news of our passage starting here. Look at what verse, look at what God says to the serpent here in the first two lines of verse 15. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent there, between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be war, God says. War between you, you murdering liar, and between the woman who you deceived. There are three things I want you to notice about this declaration right here. First, God says the tables are going to be turned. 
tables are going to be turned. Although the decision to disobey God was in fact an act of treason by Adam and Eve against God, God says that things are not going to stay that way. The war will be between the serpent, this representative, this tool of Satan and the woman. The act of disobedience which placed mankind under the sway and the control of this prince of darkness, the spirit which Paul says is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which enslaves us to the ways of sin and its passions, that's going to be undone. The tide of war is going to change. God declares that that which was undone in the fall is going to be restored. He also says that he is going to be the one who does that. It's the second thing I want you to notice. God declares that he is going to be the one who makes this change happen. I, God says, will put enmity, which is a word that means conflict or war, between you and the woman. This is going to happen because God says he's going to do something about what had just taken place. The fall of mankind is going to be reversed. And the woman who was initially the target of the serpent's deception is going to be restored and saved. And she is going to be resisting this serpent. God did not abandon his creation to the darkness. He is declaring in this moment that he is going to do something. He is going to redeem what was lost. He is going to turn the tables. He's declaring that he is going to make war on the serpent and restore what was broken. The third thing you should notice here is that God introduces us to the way in which he says he's going to restore his creation. He says that he's going to do it by providing an offspring through the woman who is going to take this war to the serpent himself. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God's answer to the problem of humanity's sin was not to make Eve its savior, but it was to bring a savior to the world through her by giving a son who would be a new and better Adam, who would make war on the serpent and his offspring. This, this was appropriate, given God's purpose of restoring what was just lost. Stephen Dempster explains that just as the woman was built from the man in order to complete the old creation, so we see that a seed will be built from the woman with the task of restoring the lost dominion of the old creation to its rightful heirs. A promise of restoration, we see, as God makes this, rest on an offspring. And because God says that he is going to be the one who does this through the woman, hope shines. In the wake of the fall, God declared war. He declared he was going to take creation back. As we read through the storyline of the Bible, you can see a pattern that begins to form, even from chapter 4 of Genesis, where we see with, starting with really with Abel and Cain, where Cain tries, he actually kills his brother, and then God triumphs. We see that pattern continuing on through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, and so on, where the promise, every time the promise seems to be threatened, every time when you see things like when Cain kills his brother, 
God providing. He said that in the wake of Abel's murder, God provides Adam and Eve with another son, Seth. When the world becomes so wicked that God regrets, he says he regrets making man, and he vows to start over, we see that he preserves his promise by saving Noah and his family. In the face of barrenness and old age, God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac and a promise of an inheritance. That promise then, we see it surviving famines and pillaging and not having a homeland. And finally, we see it it, it surviving conflict in the life of Jacob and then also in the life of Joseph. As Israel grows into a great nation with the blessing and the protection of God, we see God pulling them out, making war on Egypt and saving them from slavery. We see how God brought that nation to the promised land under Joshua. Later on, we see how God provides his people with a king, David, a man after his own heart, who united the people and protected them from their enemies. When, when things got bad with that, and exile threatened to undo the promise, we see that God kept and sustained his people, appointing a king, foreign kings, even Cyrus, long before he was born, to ultimately send Israel back to their place. And then he uses the likes of Nehemiah and Ezra to protect and establish them there again. Every time the promise gets threatened by the offspring of the serpent, God steps in and saves. Every There are many more examples that I could point to. Men and women of the faith who lived in this promise of the offspring, who weren't the promised offspring themselves, but who lived with longing, we're told by the author of Hebrews, towards the day that God was going to bring this promise to pass. With each instance, we see God operating in this war on sin, bringing undeserving sinners into a relationship with Him, establishing covenants leading to the one who would fulfill those covenants and ultimately establish a new and better one. These lived by faith, looking forward, even as Adam did when he named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living in anticipation of the one who would deal the final blow to the serpent's head. So God, we see first in dealing with this, declares he's going to make war and reverse what had happened. But then he also tells us how he's going to do that. We see now the son's victory over the serpent. God never fails. He never fails. In addition to promising that there would be war, he promises that he's going to restore his creation. And he promises that an end will come for the serpent himself at the very hands of this promised offspring of the woman. He will bruise your head, God tells the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to do more than just fight the serpent. He's going to win. The word that we have translated here, bruise, means exactly that. That's, that's what it means. But it can also mean crush. And I really prefer that rendering because I think it captures really the, the real and complete victory that this promised offspring is accomplishing. This isn't a flesh wound to the serpent. The promised son is going to topple and destroy this self-exalting serpent. He's going to undo the kingdom of darkness. In this war between God and the serpent, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, there are no draws. This is total and final victory or nothing. When sin and death entered the world, they came in like invaders. They wrecked havoc on God's good world. 
the serpent in his craftiness tried to usurp control and he had managed to topple Adam from his from his position for a while but it was a temporary victory which proved fatal for him in the end true victory God says belongs solely to this promised son this offspring the snake crusher now each year at Christmas this is fundamentally what we are celebrating we are celebrating the arrival of this promised offspring It is not a small thing that our Savior was born in the manner that he was. The fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin has a part to play in identifying him as this long-awaited offspring, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and win victory for his people. The Gospel of Matthew tells us how the angel who appeared to Joseph, Mary's betrothed, said to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That right there, is the promise of Genesis 3:15 taking on flesh literally as the word of God takes on a human nature embraces humility and weakness and then wins victory for his people the promise of God even in the midst of the fall was that the serpent would be defeated that death would lose its sting and that sin would be broken and defeated through the victory of Jesus Christ God said that there was going to be a war He was not going to abandon his creation. And then he promised there would be victory. That victory has come to us through Jesus Christ, who is uniquely able to carry that out on account of the fact that he was not only the son of man, the offspring of the woman, but also the eternal son of God. As we think about God's promise, it's important for us to see that our salvation is totally and and completely a work of, of God's grace. Our victory is totally dependent on the way that Jesus has overcome the power of sin and the rule of Satan for us. This first declaration of the gospel which we see in the Bible will have us to be rest assured in the word of God and in the work of God. All of this we see he has brought to pass through Jesus Christ our Savior. That brings us to consider the cost of this victory, our third point. Now, the road from Pearl Harbor to victory in Japan Day, VJ Day, was long and hard. Victory was sweet. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of of people uh, reacting to the news that the war was over. Like in New York, it's pretty iconic pictures of sailors kissing random women and everyone's happy. Yeah, everyone was, victory was sweet. The war was over, but it was costly. It cost lives, it cost money, it cost material. It left many parts of the world utterly devastated. In Genesis 3.15, we're prepared not just to see that victory is coming, that it has come in Christ, but it also prepares us to see the cost of that salvation, what it was going to cost. And we see that that cost came on this promised offspring, God has secured our salvation by giving his only son, Jesus Christ, to be that offspring 
who alone can secure that victory for us. Even as God tells the serpent that the offspring of the woman is going to crush his head, he also says you are going to bruise his heel. Now the word bruise here is the same word that God uses to speak about the way that the son, about what the son was going to do to the serpent. The difference is the location. The son is going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent, God says, was going to bruise the son's heel. The victory of the son was not free. It is free to us, but it was costly to Christ. It was costly because God can't just forgive sin. He cannot sweep sin under some cosmic rug. He is holy. In order for God to declare sinners like us to be righteous, that justice has to be satisfied. There has to be true righteousness. Not just a declaration of, don't worry about it, you're good. But true righteousness, that God can look at us and say, you are holy. You are righteous. In order for that to happen, something had to happen to Christ. You see, the way that Jesus crushes the head of the serpent was by being crushed for our sin on the cross. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. It's what's known as one of Isaiah's well-known servant songs, especially the suffering servant. In that, God, through Isaiah, speaks of what this offspring is going to do and expands it out so that we can understand the weight of what it means for the son's heel to be bruised. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind so that he may sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When God said that the foot of the promised offspring, his own son, was going to be bruised by the hands of the serpent, this is what he's talking about. This was no small thing. It was the Son of God humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant becoming servant to all, embracing humility even to the point of laying down his life, suffering and dying for us on a Roman cross, bearing the weight and the agony of the wrath of God. So as the Son of God let out his cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And breathed his last. The serpent must have thought to himself, 
I've won. But little did he know that the bruising of the sun was the very blow that would crush his head. That cross is where the victory of Christ was won. And when Jesus rose again on the third day, that victory was declared. The fangs fell out of that snake's mouth, and the sting of death was no more. The bruising of the sun is the whole reason you and I do not need to fear judgment anymore. It's the reason that you and I are now, by the grace of God, able to fight sin and resist the devil. We're slaves of the kingdom of darkness no more. We've become one with Christ in the kingdom of God, sons and daughters of the Most High Living God. As we look at the trajectory of the gospel, a trajectory which is set here in Genesis 3.15, I want to leave you with three takeaways, three takeaways to remember in this Christmas season, three takeaways, I think, that as you mull over these things, help us to take the glory of what God has accomplished in Christ and to live them out on a day-to-day basis. First, don't live at peace with sin. Don't live at peace with your sin. God has not abandoned us to the darkness. We see that he has waged his war and he has secured victory for us through his son, Jesus Christ. While the victory over sin and Satan has been won, it's a war that is still being fought. And if we're truly united to Christ, we must join with him in that fight against sin. One of the key features that marks the children of God is that they fight sin and the darkness just as God fights sin and the darkness. Don't make... Don't make peace with sin. Don't make allowances for it. This is a fight to the death. Jesus has already won victory for us. But the greatest desire of the children of light should be to see the darkness totally expelled from their lives. So let us make war on those old desires that are at war with the desires of the Spirit. Let us put those old ways to death and let us live in the light of Christ. Second, Live in Jesus' victory. Rest in it. All the promises which God gave about the defeat of the serpent hinge on the work of this promised son. Every one of them. It's important for us to remember that our victory is not in our own work, but in his work for us. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That needs to be The gospel message needs to be emblazoned at the forefront of your mind. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is not of ourselves. It is the work of God. God's work is what has resulted in our victory. It's a work of grace we get to enjoy because of his love toward us. Rest in that. Rely on that. Third, embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. Jesus tells us that if anyone would be his disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. By calling his disciples to the cross, Jesus has called us to give up anything and everything that would get between us and him. He calls us to live with one hope and with one affection, to embrace the sort of humility that he embraced, and to cast ourselves on him, entrusting ourselves to his work for us. 
At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. As we do, let's remember that the Son of Mary, who is also the Son of God, was this promised offspring who came to wage God's war against sin, who secured victory over sin and death for us, and who did so even at the cost of his own blood. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to stand before you this morning and thank you for the victory of the Lamb, the Lamb who triumphed over, over the serpent. Father, we thank you for the way that you did not abandon us, that you did not just decide to just destroy your creation and be done with it and start anew. But you chose to redeem that, and in so doing, you have exalted Jesus in the sight of all. Father, we thank you for the gospel that proclaims this to us, that even as it unearths our sin, even as it holds a mirror up to see the darkness that is within us, it also shines into it with the light of Christ, redeeming what was lost, reforming what had become uh, disordered, restoring the image and elevating that image to be with Christ so that we're not just, we're not just humans, but we have been saved by the grace of Christ and we are now rightly called your children because of our relationship with Jesus. Father, we pray that we would live in that reality. Father, give us grace to fight sin. We, we know, even this morning, we have felt the tug of sin at our own hearts. Maybe we've even given in to it. So, Father, we want to confess that to you and, rep and repent of it. But also, Father, as we do so, we thank you for that sure promise of Jesus' victory, the likes of which why John can say in his epistle that if we confess our sin... You are faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And hope, Father, we pray that as we remember that this victory came at the cost of the blood of Christ, that we would also rejoice in the victory he secured for us in his life. And Father, as his death becomes our death, we thank you that his life is also our life. And we pray for grace to live that out even in this Christmas season as we celebrate the arrival of the promised offspring. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.